I think we had a video uh, teed up to say Happy Father's Day, so I'll say it. Happy Father's Day. As a new dad, I can appreciate um, that, the day to appreciate dad. Um, dads, we need this message today. We need it really badly, and I'm going to tell you why. Let me introduce myself. I'm Nick Crawford. I'm the community group's pastor here. Um, we're in the series, still, still in the series in James that we've called Choices. What do you do? when you don't have a clue. We really need that message because how many of us dads really do have a clue, right? I don't, I'll be the first to tell you. There are many times I do not have a clue, but we need this message. Let me tell you why. God made us guys as hyperactive doers. And good dads know that our great sin is just the opposite of hyperactive doing. It's withdrawal. Good dads can even crave respect. And we seek to earn it on our own by doing and fixing. We want favor. We want favor. And we try really hard to go get it. Because it's in the quest for favor that we can do good things for the wrong reasons. And that's where we can mess this up a little bit. So what do we do? What do we do when our faith begins to falter? Because when we do the right stuff for the wrong things... It produces a faith that falters. What do we do when our faith falters? We're going to answer that question today in James 2, verses 14 to 26. We can throw it up. You can turn there if you like. There should be a black Bible in the pew in front of you. It's page 1012, page 1012. This passage involves a well-known and often misconstrued and certainly misapplied phrase in the church, faith and works. Faith and works. So because it can be confusing and misconstrued, I'm going to tee it up with a little bit of background. Who James is and who he writes to frames this for us. James was converted to Christ as an eyewitness of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us that. But he was Jewish. He was really Jewish. He had a very Jewish upbringing. And he wrote to dispersed Christians, many of whom were also Jewish converts, Jewish Christians, In their hostile surroundings, these dispersed and persecuted Christians began to let intellectual agreement pass off for true faith. And that was attributable to their upbringing. You see, during Israel's Babylonian captivity, they were deprived of the use of the temple. So they met in small groups. They did so to do the things that we do in small group, to pray, to study the Bible, to talk about the Bible. And when they returned back to Israel and Judah... The synagogue spread rapidly. You know what that means, synagogue? It just means a meeting together. The synagogue spread all across Israel and Judah. And because so much of their faith was tied to what they knew, the synagogue became somewhat of an elementary school to the Jews. Boys started school at age five, and they'd go six days a week for about half a day. Now, the good boys, the all-stars, the ones who had demonstrated the ability to learn faster and memorize more, they got promoted The rest of us, we didn't make the cut, so we got regular jobs. Now, education and religion were a very large part of Jewish culture. And it became so big that it began to replace true faith. And so James writes. Now, James does not devalue knowledge. Okay, let's get that straight. But he does say there is something that we need to know. And here it is. Jesus came down, he lived perfectly, 
He died, was buried, was separated from the love of the Father, rose in power, demonstrating that the Father was forever satisfied with the penalty of sin, and then Jesus sat down. Okay? Jesus sat down. So what James is saying there, there is one thing you need to know. One thing you need to know, and that's the gospel. And there's one thing you need to do. One thing you need to do is believe the gospel. Church, faith alone saves us. Faith alone makes us good and right before a holy God. We're not saved by faith plus our works. That's another way of saying I trust Jesus as Savior, but I need to add to what he's done. And so I become a little bit of my own Savior. And so our faith falters because it's not secure when we are our own Savior. True faith produces good works, and good works are evidence of true faith. Let's read. We got it? All right. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body... What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed in God and was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, on Father's Day, thank you for being a father to us, for loving us like children. Lord, open hearts and open minds today. Let us see you for who you really are, that you alone have the power to save and to make us good. May this message simply reflect what you have already done for us. Amen. God has something for us all today, not just the dads. We can all get this wrong. We can all get faith and works wrong. We can all find our purpose and our meaning and all of our doing, so we can justify ourselves by what we do. So when we mess up, we can wonder, have I done enough? Am I okay? Have I fallen out of favor with the Lord? Where do you go when you mess up? Where do you go when you have more on your plate than you can stand, when you have more on your plate than you can do in a given time? Where do you go then? What do you do then? Do you default to fix-it mode do you work hard or do you try to save yourself? That's the problem. Too often we try to double down on our efforts when all we need to do is double down 
on our faith. And that's the reason that it's faith and not something else, because faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of self-reliance and self-dependence. Faith says, I give up on my own power. I trust Jesus to be enough, and I trust his work to be finished. But faith is invisible. And what we can't see so often produces uncertainty. So how do we know? How do we know if our faith is real and true? James is saying that faith has a way of revealing itself in the world. True faith produces good works, and good works demonstrate that faith is real. Church, we don't earn God's favor, and there is nothing we can do to change that. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Indeed, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Because faith in Christ is the only way to become right in God's eyes, we must consider whether our faith is real or not. When your faith falters, you just look at the cross. The cross is the only place that a work was truly ever finished. It's the cross that inspires true faith, and it's true faith that can be seen. James tells us what it looks like. James says true faith is this. It is expressed by good works. It is evidenced by good action. And it exemplifies the good work that has already been done. First, in verses 14 to 17, true faith is expressed by good deeds. James is teaching us there that true faith is revealed by good deeds, and good deeds are the result of a transformed heart. In this section of the, of the passage, James teaches that people with true faith do good deeds. Those without it can't. In verse 14, he asks a rhetorical question. Look at it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The faith James is talking about is not really a faith at all. It's not genuine. It's dead. That's why James says if someone says they have faith, and then he follows up with that question, can that faith save him? James is making a distinguishment, all right? He's distinguishing dead faith from the true faith that saves. And to illustrate this point, he introduces us to two people. First is a person with needs, we see this person in verse 15. James introduces him as a member of the Christian community, calling this person a brother or sister. This Christian is poorly clothed and hungry. The second character is a person with means. We see this character in verse 16. James introduces him by how he addresses the need. He does so with a statement. It's a nice statement, but it's just a statement. So it's an empty statement. This person has the capacity for generosity, but he doesn't do anything. Empty statements reveal empty faith. And that's why James calls it dead. You see, all this all talk and no walk kind of faith is precisely the kind of faith that James says is dead. In other words, it's a faith that never had any life in it to begin with. Dead faith is useless because it doesn't concern itself with the needs of others. And so it doesn't build up the body of Christ. 
True faith is always more than a statement. It's a confession that results in a life of good deeds. Now, John Calvin says this very nicely. He says it this way. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. When you love someone, you show it. You don't just drop the love bomb on them and move on, do you? You got to demonstrate that your love is real. My wife, Kristen, has got a birthday coming up. And I've been sneaking around trying to get her exactly what she wants. I know she wants some pillows, but not just any pillows, okay? Pacific Coast double down pillows. My wife wants to sleep on the clouds. She wants to sleep on the clouds. And she needs to. Let me tell you, she's a mom and she works really hard. She's like many of you ladies that amaze me because you can all do a million things at once well. And I'm like struggling to do one thing at a time decent. The moms in here are really good. And I'm saying that on Father's Day, okay? Now, I know that the key to sweet dreams for my wife is a good pillow. So I set out to get it for her. Now, I've been busy in myself probably too much preparing for a sermon. So I went online shopping, Okay, sorry, Fondren people. I went online shopping. <laughs> I know my wife has an Amazon account, so that's where I hung out. I was hoping to get some free shipping, too, on the deal. So I, I know all of her passwords. I got onto her Amazon account, and I noticed that there's a drop-down menu that says Kristen's List. Click, and wouldn't you know it? There are the Pacific Coast double-down pillows. Ten clicks later, they're on the way to my doorstep. And I'm thinking, this is easy. This is so easy. I just got her exactly what she wants, and it's never been easier than it was right now. Well, not so fast. Because what I did not know, what I should have known, and what I do know now, is that when you make a purchase on Amazon, a confirmation email goes to the account holder. So very soon after I made the purchase of the right gift, my wife is somewhere across town opening up an email that says, congratulations on your recent purchase of Pacific Coast Double Down Pillows. Surprise. <laughs> Even though I totally botched the delivery, my gift to Kristen still made her happy because I showed her that I cared enough about her to get her what she wanted. Real love is always demonstrated. It's always shown. God showed his love for us in that while we sinned, Christ died for us. And how we see ourselves in relation to that gospel truth goes a long way in moving us to show our true faith by our good deeds. If we see ourselves as above the fray, we're unlikely to stoop below our own propped up images. But if we see ourselves truly as sinners saved by grace, then we'll see others in need of grace too and we'll begin to see them as brothers and sisters in Christ and we'll respond accordingly. It's the latter of the two that represents a true understanding that we all do stand together at the foot of the cross. Good works are the overflow of a heart that loves Jesus. Here's the kicker. We don't do good works so we can be saved. We are saved so we can do good works. Good deeds are never a substitute for faith in Christ. They're just the proof of it. And there's only one thing that God wants you to do. Have faith in Jesus. Everything else flows from that. That's why Jesus always focused on the heart. 
And we can come to him like the rich young ruler, can't we? We come asking him for a to-do list. Jesus, what do I need to do to get to heaven? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, nothing. Just purify the heart. Have no other gods before me. Jesus always focused on the heart. And a transformed heart results in a transformed life. A transformed life displays the fruits of the Spirit. So if your faith is faltering, just consider the fruit that's on display in your life. If there's a lack of fruit in an area, there's a need for transformation. And that is where Jesus does his best work. True faith is always expressed by good deeds. True faith is also evidenced by good action. Verses 18 to 20, James teaches us that true faith is active. And good action doesn't seek to prove anything to anybody. James shows us some signs here of a faith that's not really a faith at all. Mere agreement with the gospel and doing good things for the wrong reasons. To prove his point, we are introduced to two other people. A man with true faith and a man with dead faith. The man with true faith is the speaker here. The man with dead faith, this is the person introduced as someone in verse 18. He claims to have faith. He even agrees that faith without works is dead. But he gets it backwards. He stresses the importance of the work, boasting, I'll show you my faith by my works. He's pointing at all the things he's doing as if it's all the doing that matters most. He does this to prove a faith that does not exist. He does, he's doing all the right stuff for all the right things to prove himself. Unless our faith involves trust, it's not true, and so it won't be evidenced by good action. Knowledge without trust is not true faith because mere agreement with a well-known fact involves no personal Commitment. Faith without works is simply head belief, so it's dead belief. That's what James is saying here in verses 19 to 20. He says, even the demons know the right things about God, and they shudder in fear. Why? Why are they so afraid? They don't trust God as Lord, so he will not be their Savior. Knowing the right things apart from right action is useless That's what James is driving at here. This results in proving ourselves as opposed to proving Jesus in our hearts. Now, I got to play in a big tennis tournament last weekend with my friend Stuart Whitaker and some others. We we lost. Just put that out there right off the bat. We lost. Um, It was good recess for me. I enjoyed myself, and we even overachieved. But Stuart said it best. There are no moral victories on this team, Nick. You lose, you lose. So um, on Monday morning, still reeling from the defeat and Stewart's judgment of our team, I got a text message from an old buddy. He played in the same tournament, and he won. So he shot me a picture of his trophy, needling me a little bit. Now let me tell you, I have won a bigger tournament, and I have a better trophy to prove it. So what do you think I did? Well, I can tell you what I wanted to do. I wanted to one-up him. I wanted to shoot a picture and send him a picture of my better trophy. But I, I took the high road. I congratulated him, said good luck on the next one, and I gave him the emoji thumbs up thing. <laughs> Moved on. Now, I wanted to prove myself, 
better than him by pointing to my better achievements. But you want to know the truth about my better trophy? It's a really cool tennis ball. All right? it, it looks real except for it's glass. And it sits on top of a glass pedestal. It's about, the trophy's about this big. My son mistakenly took the glass ball for a real ball and he yanked it off the counter to play with it and he broke the thing in half. So God used a two-year-old to prove to me that my achievements don't last and they're really not that important. Why do we insist on proving ourselves with things that don't last? Deep down, we all want to prove ourselves to base our worth on what it is that we do. And so our identities become wrapped up in how we perform, and that is exhausting. We do all this extra stuff. We work extra hours. We try and try and try to produce the perfect kids, and it wears us out. Some weeks we can even pull it off, too. But doesn't it seem so fragile? All the performing, it just seems so fragile. Living in a constant state of stress and busyness, our faith begins to falter. This is doing good works for all the wrong reasons, and this is a real issue. If you are a believer, you're already proven and you're already accepted. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. Church, we need to stop trying to prove ourselves. God gave his son so that we could be good with him forever. True faith is seen by good action, and good action proves what Jesus has done, not what we have done. True faith is evidenced by good action, and it doesn't seek to prove anything to anybody. Lastly, true faith exemplifies the good that has already been done. Verses 21 to 26 Church, we don't make ourselves good. We are made good by Jesus' work at the cross. James uses one word three different times in this section. It's another word for proving ourselves. Justify. Justify simply means to make good. It's how a sinner is made good before God. And this is central to the gospel. James is saying in this section that there is a certain order that takes place. True faith makes us right and good before God, and true faith enables us to receive salvation. Faith comes first. Then, good behavior follows as a result of a changed heart, which changes our affections and our appetites. As a new creation, the Christian begins to want what God wants, and so he begins to enjoy what God wants him to do. This is how faith and works works. James gives us two more examples from the Faith Hall of Fame to illustrate this very point, he begins with Father Abraham, the patriarch of the faith. Now, we need to pay attention to a certain timeline of events here. In verse 21, James points to Abraham's faithful obedience to the Lord by offering a, his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And um, he says that it is this, it's this act that, James, that, that made Abraham justified. It was this offer of sacrifice that justified him by his works. Now, this seems to contradict Paul's clear teaching in Romans 4 on the same issue, where Paul says Abraham was justified by faith alone. So which is it? Are we made good by faith? Or are we made good by works? 
Paul points to Abraham's initial justification, the time at which he was saved. He's referencing specifically Genesis 15:6, when Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is talking about the priority of faith. Faith comes first. But the sacrifice of Isaac occurred in Genesis 22, many, many years after Abraham first believed. So James is saying that it was Abraham's work that demonstrated a faith that already existed. James is talking about the proof of faith. Good works demonstrate true faith. While Paul uses that word justify to emphasize the gospel truth that one is declared righteous by God through faith solely on the sacrifice of Christ, James uses the word in a different sense to emphasize the response to that gospel truth. In other words, as a proof that someone has already been made good. Rahab. Y'all remember Rahab? I'm so glad that James mentions her in this context, and you should be too. Rahab was different than Abraham in almost every way. She was a Gentile, so she was outside the faith. She was a woman, so she had no power in society then, and she was a prostitute. So she was not morally acceptable, and so she was not saved on the basis of a good reputation. But James reminds us that there was one thing that Rahab had in common with Abraham. Verse 25, in the same way, her deeds justified or proved the existence of her true faith. You see, Rahab lived in Jericho before the walls came tumbling down, and she had heard reports of an army that couldn't be stopped. She believed that God was the reason why, too. She believed in God and chose to identify with him, and she was made good before him at that point in time. Then she proved her help, her faith, by helping the Hebrew spies hide and later on escape. And as a result, she was saved when Jericho was destroyed. By including Rahab as an example of someone who can be made good before God, James shows us that anyone who trusts in the Lord can be made good. Now, let's look at the good acts, the good deeds of Abraham and Rahab together. What was so good about those good deeds? For Abraham, it was a willingness to murder his son. For Rahab, it was treason. She sold out her own country. Now let's get something straight here. Murder and treason, not good. Those are not good. So what made them good? Faith. Faith was the common denominator in both. If you remove faith from these acts, you get purely bad acts. And so we see the relationship between faith and works. They go hand in hand. Faith is what makes a good work good. Faith can turn something terribly bad into something that even the holy God of all creation can see is good. And the holy God of all creation hates sin so much that he did sacrifice his son. He sent Jesus to kill it forever. We have a two-story storage shed in my backyard, and my son loves to go up to the second story. The second story is a playhouse with a little balcony that overlooks our backyard. This week, 
I got a new baseball glove for Father's Day, by the way. We were playing with it in the backyard. And as we were playing catch, my son decided to cut the game off short. And he went up to the balcony to throw the ball off. I followed him to make sure he didn't fall off the edge. And he started playing a game by himself. He'd go up, throw the ball off, go down and get it, run back up and do it over again. He did it over and over and over again. I don't know, 10, 15 times maybe. But after a while, I could see a little light bulb go off in that dude's head. He realized that he had stopped playing the game with me and he wanted to involve me back in the action. Apparently, playing ball with dad was more fun than playing ball by himself. He stopped and he looked up at me. He jumped, couldn't reach me. Then he tried, he took the ball, he tried to underhand it as high as he could, didn't make it. And then my little two-year-old scooted back, got a running start to muster up all his strength, and he threw the ball as hard as he possibly could. Still did not make it. Nothing that Coy did could bridge the gap between where he was standing on the ground and where I was standing on the balcony. It wasn't until I left my perch and went down to him that he could begin to play with his father again. And together, we had a ball. We could never make it to the Father if it was not for Jesus. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we know, who we know, or what we do. Nothing we do can change that. Church, the Christian faith is not something we do. It's something that was done for us at the cross. We receive salvation not on the basis of our work, but on the basis of his work. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserved. And then he rose in power demonstrating that God the Father was forever satisfied with the penalty for our sins. And then Jesus sat down. When you feel the desire to justify yourselves, just remember what Christ has done at the cross. If you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can't do anything to make yourself more acceptable to the Father than you are right now. You are accepted. Thinking on his costly grace will change you too. It'll change how you feel about what makes you feel good. No longer will you begin to feel good about what you do, so you'll stop with the performance act. You'll start to feel good about what has been done for you, and that is a perspective that will transcend any circumstance that you find yourself in right now. It's faith in Christ that seals the deal. That's how we become a Christian. That's how we stay as a Christian. And that's how we grow as a Christian. New life begins when we receive the Spirit by believing in Christ crucified. New life does not begin when we finally somehow manage to observe the law. It's foolish to think that we can now somehow add to what Christ has already finished we are not saved by faith plus everything else that we do. We can never add to his work. True faith, by its nature, reflects the one on whom our faith completely rests. And that is a faith that finds joy and satisfaction in loving others. True faith exemplifies the work that Jesus has already done. And it is finished. 
Church, we're all poor before God. We all have a debt. No one is worthy. Yet in his great love, he still pursued us. And he didn't pursue us when we made the all-star team, when we were blue chip recruits or upper level management. He pursued us when we failed to make the cut. The gospel is for the poor. It's for those of us who are spiritually poor and realize that we can't do anything to change that on our own. It's only faith that allows us to receive the change that God wants to give. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is our only ground to make things right. He's the only way to fix what's broken. He is the great fixture, not you. He fixes your marriages, your relationships, your addictions, your identity crisis. He fixes it all. And there is supreme hope in that gospel truth because you can never make yourself right before God. You just can't. He's too high and we're too low. But he came down to meet us despite our dirt, our shame, and our guilt. He came down to meet us. Salvation is a free gift that's received by faith alone. So anyone who hears this today can respond freely and receive that. Salvation is freely offered. And there's more. If you're in Christ, there's more hope. God will never make you pay the penalty for the sins of your past, your present, or your future. Jesus already paid the debt and he sat down. So when your faith falters, just look to the cross and ask yourself, do I really believe that it happened? If you do, you'll see it. Your works will demonstrate that. Rest. Be secure. Keep pressing forward to the upward call. If there's a lack of faith, then there will be a lack of fruit. So just turn to the one who produces the fruit. Turn to the Savior and stop trying to save yourself. Let's pray.